I would like to look this morning at a verse in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. That verse got stuck in my mind earlier in the week, has remained there, and I really like it when the Lord does that for me. But every once in a while, the Lord won't do that. The Lord will wait till the 11th hour, it seemed like, and and that Lord teaches us how dependent we are upon him and certainly his ministers. But this verse, again, got on my mind and has remained there. And I've quoted this verse many, many times over the years, but I don't think I've ever used it for a text. But thus saith the Lord, for I am the Lord, I change not. Let's look at the first part of that to begin with. For I am the Lord. Now, when I introduce myself to somebody, I may say, you know, I'm Ronald Lawrence. That identifies me, but it really doesn't carry any weight. <laughs> don't carry any weight. But when the Lord introduces himself to us, it should carry a lot of weight. When he says, for I am the Lord. In Exodus chapter 6, we find where the Lord speaks to Moses. And he's instructing Moses to go down to the land of Egypt. And in this chapter, he starts off by saying to Moses, look and see what I shall do in the Pharaoh for I am the Lord. And that expression is found in Exodus 6 five times. And then over here in the book of Leviticus in chapter 26 I noticed, and that was also in the daily Bible reading, where the Lord is reviewing with Israel his history with them and how he brought them out of the land of Egypt and how he took care of them and provided for them and blessed them. And five times in this chapter he says unto them, For I am the Lord. The word Lord here literally means Jehovah. It means self-existent eternal. That's who's speaking right here. Psalms 8 starts and ends like this. O Lord, our Lord, how great is thy name. O Lord. The word Lord that I first used is the same word here. It means self-existent, eternal. And the second time he says Lord, says, O Lord, our Lord, it means O Sovereign Master. So this word Lord is important. It's spelled with a capital L. There are places in the Bible where the word Lord is used, spelled with a lowercase l, and that has reference to a master-servant relationship. But when the Lord speaks, we should always listen. And as soon as we recognize it's the Lord, the self-existent, eternal God speaking unto us, that should get our attention. And we should believe everything that the Lord says to us, whether we understand it or not, it's another thing, but we should believe what he's saying is all truth, and we should hearken to what he says to us. So he says, I am the Lord. I am. Remember, what did the Lord tell Moses and Aaron? When they said, we go down to Egypt. This also in Exodus, this Exodus chapter 3. We go down to Egypt. And they say, who has sent us? What shall we say? And he says, you tell them that I am, that I am have sent you. And that's all in capital letters. I am. In the Gospel of John, we have the I am statements of the New Testament. I am the resurrection. I am the uh, way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine, etc. The I am statements that come from that I am back in Exodus chapter 3. So I am the Lord. I change not. Now this is one of those statements that uh, should bring great comfort to the Lord's people to know that God is unchangeable. That's, his, that's one of his attributes. He's unchangeable in his nature. He's unchangeable in his purpose. He's unchangeable in his good pleasure. He's in, unchangeable in his counsel. God simply doesn't change. Now, that word immutable is used over here in the New Testament in Hebrews 6 and 17, when he says, Wherefore God, willing to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. He's unchangeable in that. He's truth personified. And his counsel is set forever. It cannot change. He said, We might lay hold upon that hope which is set before us, which is like an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. The hope God gives us is like an anchor. A, a ship needs an anchor to stabilize it in the waters. That anchor goes down, but our anchor goes up, you see. There's a difference there. 
in the book of Hebrews 13 and 8, says Jesus Christ the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He, he doesn't change. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Our world changes all the time, doesn't it? We, we're changeable creatures. Change oftentimes is so slow you can't see it, but nevertheless it takes place. That's why if you didn't have a photograph to look at, you might think today at 70 you look like you did when you were 20. But the photograph tells the truth. If all you had to do was look in a mirror and all you ever seen yourself was that mirror, uh, you would not be able to detect change that has come about over years, but change does. A little change daily equals to a whole lot of change over a period of time. But God is no older today than he was when he created the heaven and the earth. Do you know that? God has not weakened with time. God doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. His attributes do not change. So that's how he starts his statement out. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, that word therefore means based upon, I've just said he's going to make another statement. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, who are the sons of Jacob? There were 12 of them. He had these 12 sons with four different <laughs> women. You know, there was Leah, and there was Rachel, and then there was our handmaids, etc. And so he had a divided household, if you go back and study his life. You know, Abraham and Sarah had two children. They had uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah had two Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob comes along, and he don't know where to stop. So he's got 12 plus a daughter, okay? Uh, but ye sons of Jacob. Now, the sons of Jacob will eventually form and make up the nation of Israel. So that's why he's talking about here. I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel, had ever been consumed many of the promises of God could not have been fulfilled because he made promises that could only be fulfilled through the nation of Israel, including the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord was always watching over because they were his people. They were his chosen people. Now, when you read the word Jacob in the Bible, uh, Jacob's name oftentimes is synonymous with something that should remind us of us. He's a picture. He's an illustration. He's a type of us in so many different ways. When I say us, I'm talking about the children of God. For example, we look at the book of Isaiah 43 in the opening verses. He says, Therefore, fear not, O Jacob, for I have created thee. He says, Fear not, O Israel, for I have formed thee. And I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by name, thou art mine. Now, in that familiar language, in that familiar language there, he said, I have created thee, O Jacob. Notice he calls him by the name Jacob and also by the name of Israel because his name Jacob was given to him by Isaac and Rebekah, but his name Israel was given to him by God. His name was changed to Israel, which means prince with God. We read about that two different times in Genesis 32 and Genesis 35. So sometimes it says it one way, sometimes another. And this in this passage, he says it both ways. I've created thee, O Jacob, I've formed thee, O Israel, and I have redeemed thee, talking about the deliverance from Egypt. He says, I have redeemed thee, talking about the work of bringing them out of Egypt. I've called thee by name. Thou art mine. See, as Jacob's name was changed, he had two names. Now, everybody here this morning has a name that was given to you by your parents. But you also have a name that God has given you. Remember in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 went out and preached, and they came back rejoicing that God had blessed them to have power to cast out devils and unclean spirits. The Lord said, rejoice not in that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And somebody says, Brother Lawrence, is my name in heaven the same as my name here? I don't know for sure. In some cases, I hope not. <laughs> in some cases, I just hope not. Some of the names that parents give children, I, I, you know, I, I just hope not. But I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But the important thing is God's given you a name. 
just like he gave Jacob a new name, just like he changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abram, like he changed the apostle Paul from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. When God gives you a name, that, that name is very significant. And sometimes God has added to names like he did with John the ba excuse me, with the apostle Peter. Uh, when Peter was brought to him by Andrew, he said, Thou art, uh, you know, thou art the, the son of Jonas. He said, from here on you should call Cephas, which means stone. It means Peter. That was, God didn't change his name. He just added to his name, you see. So when God does that, it's very significant. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. In Isaiah chapter 41, verses 13 and 14, he says, For I am the Lord thy God. He says, Fear not, I will take thee by thy right hand, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. He says, I will help thee. You're, you're a worm, Jacob. And that word worm in the Bible points to our depraved nature. Job asked this question one time in Job 25, verse 3. He says, how can man be just with God? How can he be clean that's born of a woman? Two questions. Well, you know, the New Testament gives us the answer. How can man be just with God? Apart from God, he cannot be. How can he be clean that's born of a woman? By nature, you cannot be. You can't bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing, Job says in another part. He said, Behold, the moon, it shineth not. As beautiful as the moon is, it's not as beautiful as it was before Adam's transgression. Behold, the moon, it shineth not, and the stars, says, are not pure in his sight. Those beautiful stars are not pure in the sight of God. How much less man, who is a worm, or the son of man, who is a worm. When he said that to Jacob, it was not a compliment. At the same time, notice, even though he was a worm, he was God's worm. <laughs> and even though we're worms by nature, you know, we're depraved, we are, you know, uh, we have the same nature as those who are not God's people have. Our natures are all the same. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us in 2, 2, that we're children of wrath even as others, but we're God's children. So we see Jacob representing us in this. In the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 11, For the children, having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. You know, he's going to teach something about the doctrine of election here. The children, having not yet been born, it's Jacob and Esau. The children, having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might, must stand, uh, shall stand. He says, As is written, the elder shall serve the younger, and Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Jacob represents the Lord's people in the doctrine of election. Romans eleven twenty six. he says, And all Israel shall be saved, for God shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. You might say, well, that's great for Jacob. What about me? Well, Jacob represents you here in this text. And notice, while the Bible teaches us that we are to deny ungodliness and turn away from ungodliness in our conduct before God, here, that's not what it says. It says, God shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. Only God could do that. Only God could take care of that on the cross, you see. He said, God shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. As is written, all Israel shall be saved. Talking about spiritual Israel in this text here. So he represents us in that. In his experience of grace, when he's fleeing from Esau, and he lays down uh, for, and uses rocks for a pillar under his head, and God appears unto him, there's a ladder that stretches from earth to heaven, and God is at the top of that ladder. You know how he starts this off with Jacob? He says, for I am, for I am the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In the land in which you lie here, he says, I shall give to thee and thy seed forever. He represents us in that. He found Jacob in a desert land in a waste howling wilderness. That's where he found you. That's where he found me. That's where he finds all of God's children. He always finds them in a desert land in a waste howling wilderness. That's our condition. That's a, a picture he's given us here of how God deals with us in our experience of grace. Jacob's extremely important character in all these verses that I've given you right here. And then his name change, which we've already mentioned. But we come to our text here. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, your sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, the first prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in Genesis 3 and 15. The Lord has come on the scene after Adam has transgressed God's law. He spoke to Adam, he spoke to Eve, now he speaks to the serpent. 
And he says to the serpent, he said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It, his seed, shall bruise thy head. Your seed shall bruise his heels. That's a promise of the coming of the Messiah, which cannot take place if the sons of Jacob are consumed. I want you to remember that. All right, we come to Genesis chapter 12, and God is speaking to Abram when he calls him out of the land of the earth of the Chaldees. He's going to call him out of that land into the land of Canaan, which he's never seen. He says, come, get away from your kindred. He says, come out of that land to the land that I will show thee. He says, and I will bless thee. I will make thee great. I will make thee a great nation, and ye shall be a blessing. Now, this is what God's going to do for him. It's not what he's doing for God. This is what God's doing for him. <laughs> don't, you, don't you just get weary when people talk about all they do for God? <laughs> but you ever got tired of hearing what God's done for you? That's the difference, my friends, between truth and error. That's the difference between the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of works. So that's what he says he's going to do for Abraham. Then he says to Abraham, he says, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse him that curseth you. And through thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He's talking, the seed is Christ. That's not going to happen if Israel is consumed. But the promise here is, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We come to Exodus chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. And the Lord here, again, uh, is speaking to Moses, to Israel. He said, Thy seed shall be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They shall be there 400 years. 400 years they shall be in that land. He said, but they shall be delivered out of that land. They shall come out with great substance. The Lord gives this message to Abraham. Is he going to come to pass or not? If Israel gets consumed, it will never come to pass. The text says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob shall not be consumed. It's not because people haven't tried. You see, there's never been a people more persecuted on this earth than the Jewish people have been. It didn't just start several months ago. It didn't just start a few years ago. It started way back in Genesis chapter 37 and Exodus chapter 1. Let's go to look at Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50. These are the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's a different phase of the life of Jacob. It starts off saying these are the generations of Jacob. But the one character in these chapters here that the spotlight shines on the most is Joseph. Joseph's name is mentioned more than twice than that of Jacob. Jacob's his father. It opens up Joseph being 17 years of age. And God gives him two dreams. These are very important. He gives him two dreams, and these two dreams are going to teach. There's going to come a time down the road in the future when all his family is going to bow to him. He says, we were out in the field binding sheaves. And he says, your sheaves all bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers didn't like that. <laughs> and then he gives another dream. He says, there was a sun and a moon and 11 stars. And his father, and he says, they all did obeisance unto me. And the, his father Jacob didn't understand that either. His father uh, actually rebuked him for that. He said, shall me and thy mother and thy brother all bow down to thee? They didn't understand it then, but years later they would. Remember, these are two dreams that God gave Joseph. I want you to keep these in mind. Now, they envied Joseph and hated Joseph, and they put him into a pit. And they were just going to leave him there to perish in that pit. Simeon left and began to think about a way to try to get him out. While he was gone, they saw some Midianites come by. And so they, Judah comes up with an idea. and said, well, we'll just send them to the Midianites. He'll, they'll take them on down to Egypt. They'll save him as a slave. We'll never hear anything from him ever again. And his blood won't be on our hands. They like that idea, so they sold him to the Midianites. Now, I love the providence of God. I love to preach about it. I love to hear about it. I love to read about it, whether it be out of the Bible or, or you know, the testimony witnesses of other people. I love to hear you tell me about your providential dealings with God or his providential dealings with you. 
I'm saying it's just marvelous how God watches over. So when you begin to look at the life of Joseph here, you'll begin to see how God ruled and overruled in his life because something's going to happen down the road that God's going to have Joseph in a position to save his people from being consumed. There's going to come seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Nobody knows this but God at, the point, at this point. God knows it. Nobody else does. Joseph is sold into bondage down there as a slave in the house of Potiphar. But notice, not just anybody's house. Potiphar was the chief bodyguard in charge, you might say, of the secret service of that day for the king. So he had the king's ear. He was right close to the king. And God blessed Potiphar for Joseph's sake. Everywhere Joseph went, Joseph was a blessing. Joseph was 17 years of age. Now, we got young folks here this morning I'm thankful for. Some are less than 17, some are more than 17, but pay attention to Joseph. And pay attention to Daniel and the Hebrew children. They were all teenagers when you start reading about them. The Bible gives us the names of many people of various ages from being very young to very old who were faithful in their service to God. In other words, God's got a place for everybody in his house in his kingdom no matter how old you are or how young you are. Joseph's 17 again. He's uprooted from his home. He's sold down here to the land of Egypt. He's in the household of Potiphar. He's a servant. But soon Potiphar recognizes his house is being blessed because of this man, and he puts him in charge of everything in his household, you know, right under him. Now, I'm going to have to hit some of the high spots here this morning on some of this. But you're going to find where the wife of Potiphar lays eyes on Joseph, does all she possibly can to get him to enter into an adulterous relationship with her. Now, you wonder where Joseph's strength comes from. Where does Joseph's strength come from? Because he's going to show incredible strength to resist the temptation that's laid before him right here. He's away from home. He's away from family. You know, don't, don't always remember this. You may be away from family. You may be away from home, but you're never away from God. Joseph resists, he resists, he resists, and finally he had to flee. And when Potiphar came home, his wife lied and said he'd made advances on her, and he took Joseph and put him into a prison. He was unjustly charged. He was, guilty. He was innocent of all of that. In the book of Psalms 119, we find where the psalmist says, I've hid thy word in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Joseph didn't have a Bible. That doesn't mean God hadn't communicated with him. He'd communicated right here in his heart without any question, without any doubt. And he knew in his heart it was wrong for him to do what she wanted to do. He knew that and he resisted and God gave him the power and the strength to resist it. To finally find, winds up in prison. While he's in prison, God brings him into favor of the keeper of the prison. And we're going to find where the Lord blessed Joseph immeasurably down there. And he blessed him to come in contact with a baker and a butler. That butler was basically a cupbearer. A cupbearer was somebody who always tasted what, uh, the food before the king did, always drank of the wine before the king did, so somebody was trying to poison him, he would give his life, in other words, for that of the king. That's not a job I'd want. <laughs> I wouldn't apply for that one. All right. They both had a dream, and they came to Joseph with it. And Joseph gave him a proper interpretation of those two dreams. And Joseph interpreted them that in three days, you're going to find the butler is going to be taken out, restored. In three days, the baker is going to be taken out, and he's going to have his head cut off. Came to pass exactly like Joseph said. Joseph tells the butler, he says, when you get out of here, please say a word on my behalf to the king because he says, I've done nothing wrong, and I don't belong down here. Now, the Bible tells us not to be put confidence in men, not to be confidence in princes. And here's a classic example. Here's a man who's restored back to his former position. He had a dream. Joseph told him his dream. He came to pass exactly like he told him it was going to come to pass. And the Bible says he forgot Joseph. He not only failed to mention Joseph, he forgot Joseph. And two years go by. Two years go by. And God gives Pharaoh a dream, two of them. And Joseph, uh, Pharaoh doesn't forget these dreams like Nebuchadnezzar did, you know, in the 
over in the book of Daniel. He don't forget them, but nobody can interpret them. And then the Lord deals with the, with the uh, butler. And the Lord provokes the mind of the butler. And all of a sudden he remembers Joseph. He says unto Pharaoh, he says, there's a man down there that can interpret dreams. And he tells exactly what he did for him and the baker. And so he sent for Joseph. Now you notice when Joseph got out of there, he done several things. He shaved. Jewish people had beards. The Egyptians did not. He shaved. He washed. He changed his clothes. And he's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I understand that thou can interpret dreams. And Joseph's quick to tell him, well, it's not of me, it's of God. So he tells him what it was. And here's his two dreams. He saw seven well-favored kind, K-I-N-E, it's like cattle, that came up out of the river. And they were fat flesh and they were healthy looking one thing or another. Then he saw seven more come up out of the river. And they were skinny, they were poor, they were malnourished. And they consumed the seven well-favored kind. But when it was all over with, their appearance didn't change a bit. And then he gave him another dream. He saw ears of corn, seven good ears of corn come up on a stalk, followed by seven uh, thin ears, and the thin ears, ears consumed the good ears, but when it was all over with, they were still thin. He says to Pharaoh, he says, God's given you this dream. He's told it to you twice. It's established of God. He says there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. He says, now if I were you. He didn't stop just interpreting the dream. He went ahead and gave Pharaoh some suggestions. He said, if I was you, I'd set somebody over the affairs of the kingdom that was wise. And he says, I would have men underneath him who would collect one-fifth of everything in the seven years of plenty. So when the seven years of famine come, there'll be enough food to take care of everybody. Now, Pharaoh's looking in the eyes of a Jewish boy who just got brought out of prison right before him. He says, well, I don't know of anybody any wiser than you, <laughs> any more discreet than you. Can, can you imagine this happening now? He says, I'm going to put you in charge. He says, I'm going to put a ring on your finger. I'm going to put a necklace around your neck. I'm going to change your clothing. I'm going to give you the position where you're a second in the kingdom next to me. One minute Joseph is in prison down here and the next minute he's second command in the land of Egypt. What an amazing story of God's providence, how he rules and overrules. And so for the seven years of plenty, just like Joseph said, there came seven years of bumper crops, not just good, good crops, bumper crops as the farmers used to call it. Beyond expectation. And Joseph had men together one-fifth of all the crops and put it in the storehouses over here. He knows lessons in this for all of us. You know, there's always going to come a rainy day. A lot of people don't believe that, so they never, they never lay aside. They're never prepared when the air conditioner breaks. They're never prepared when the tires get bald. They're never prepared when the refrigerator goes on the blink. They're just never prepared. They think it's going to last forever. But it doesn't. Then the seven years started a famine and Joseph had told Pharaoh he says it's going to be really bad it's going to be very grievous now the famine just wasn't in the land of Egypt it was in all the known world at that time geographically all the lands experienced this famine but see all the lands didn't have a wise Joseph all the nations of all the other areas of the country uh, they didn't know about this, uh, what to do in those seven years of plenty so they didn't have anything but they heard there was corn down in Egypt my point of all that is this. If there had been no plans during the seven years of plenty, the Jewish people would have been consumed. Not only the Jewish people have been consumed, but all other people have been consumed. Now I told you how Joseph was a blessing, the household of Potiphar, how Joseph was a blessing. You know, uh, in that prison, now look at the blessing Joseph is. And now Joseph is 30 years old. He's been in Egypt 13 years. He's no longer 17. He's now 30. And he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in more ways than I could possibly uh, think of here this morning. But that's not my purpose this morning. My purpose is, had Joseph not been in charge, in command, through the providence of God, the seven years of famine would consume the seven years of plenty, and nothing uh, would be left, and all people would have perished upon the land. The sons of Jacob would have been consumed, but they were not. 
Now we come to Genesis chapter 49 and 50, just a little bit of information here. In chapter 49, Jacob's 147 years old. He's been in Egypt 17 years. See, Jacob's family came down to get corn. I'm, miss, you know, I'm just going over all this other stuff. And nations came there, and Joseph would give out according, uh, you know, uh, and, and by measure, so everybody had enough to live through the seven years of famine. But now Jacob's 147 years old, and he's about ready to die. And I was thinking about this. When you read death scenes in the Bible... When you read death scenes and burial scenes in the Bible, we can learn a lot how we're to take care of things today in 2024. What did Jacob do? He got his family together and he prepared them for his departure. He gave a prophecy concerning every son. Then he put Joseph in charge of taking care of his burial. And he told Joseph where he was going to be buried. He made all the plans, laid them out, put Joseph in charge, take care of it. That's just good, good, good dealings right there, good planning. And then when Jacob died, they had 70 years of mourning. Uh, excuse me, 70 uh, days of mourning. And then they took him out of Egypt, just like he said, and buried him back there in the land of Canaan, in the family burial place of Abraham and Sarah. And when he got there, they mourned seven more days. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. God made you where you could do that. Psalms 13 verse 5 says, Weeping shall endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. It's okay. It's okay. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to the grave of Lazarus, you know what he found? He found people weeping, people mourning. Mary was weeping. Martha was weeping. The Jewish people came to Bethany from out of Jerusalem, and, and they were all there to weep. The Bible says, mourn with those that mourn and rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. He didn't find people celebrating. He found people mourning and weeping. You know, when you, you've lived with a, somebody you love for a long period of time, and then and they depart, it, something just departs with you. But the truth is where the gospel and the truth of God's word really comes in. Because it's telling you this is not finality. It's telling you not to, uh, you know, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, Paul says over there, he said, I not have you ignorant brothers concerning them which are asleep in Christ that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He didn't tell you not to sorrow. He says, sorrow like those who don't have hope. Those who got hope, my friends, uh, they have the earnest expectation. One day the body's coming out of there. And then in, we find in the end of chapter 50 in Genesis where Joseph lived to be 110 years old. Joseph was 56 when his father died. He took him to Canaan and stayed a week over there. He came back and spent the rest of his life back there in the land of Egypt because God had work for him to do there. But he tells his brother before he passes, he says, God shall surely visit you and bring you up out of this land. And when he does, you take my bones out of here. Joseph knew he didn't belong down there. That's where he lived his entire life, uh, except for 17 years. He lived 93 years down there in the land of Egypt. But he knew he didn't belong there. He said, take my bones out. When Moses came down and delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt, you know what Moses did? He got Joseph's bones and took them out of there. And you know who buried him? Joshua buried him. Joshua buried those bones in the land of Shechem. So they carried out Joseph's wishes. Now we come to Exodus chapter 1, and about 200 years have passed. A new Pharaoh is on the throne, but this Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. And he notices here, at this time, there's over uh, close to 2 million Israelites in the land of Egypt. You have 600,000 footmen. You have, that's not women and children. You had the women, you had the children. You're probably coming up to close to 2 million. And you're going to find where Pharaoh looks out there and he says, you know, if we go to war and these Israelites should join and become allies with our enemies, that wouldn't be good. So he says, we need to reduce them down. So he begins to plan and plot how to do that. So he says, I want you to make their burdens hard. And you just read what he did. 
He put cruel taskmasters on top of them, made their bondage hard, their work hard. He put them doing the hardest work you could possibly do done in building cities. And you know what happened? The more afflictions he put on them, the more they increased. <laughs> These matters getting worse. They didn't get better, they're getting worse. So he goes to the midwives and he names two of them. And it's easy to, to overlook that he names these two midwives right here who, who they would have never known that their names would be put down by the inspiration of God and be here for us to read about in 2024, two midwives. He says, whenever you go to the Hebrew women about to have a child, he says, when that child is born, if it's a male child, you're to kill him. You're to kill him. So the midwives feared God more than feared man. So when the Hebrew children was about to have a child, they went there, it was a male child, they didn't do it. They feared God more. And Pharaoh called them on the carpet for it. And here's their answer. It says, well, the Hebrew women are just more lively than the Egyptian women. <laughs> In time we get there, it's too late. They've already had the child. It's out of our hands. And the Lord blessed them and gave them houses. There are a lot of different interpretations of that word house there, but it has a wide variation of meaning. But I think he just blessed them with families. Blessed them with families. He rewarded them for fearing him more than Pharaoh. So plan number two of Pharaoh goes by the wayside. He's got plan number three. He informs all the Egyptians. He says, you be on the lookout. And when there is a Hebrew child born, if it's a male, you're to drown him in the river. Well, the Lord intervened, and there's a, there's a baby born, Moses, and they hide him for three months, and then Moses' mother takes him down to the river. She puts him in the river, but she bakes a little ark for him. Puts him in that ark. Now we know how God blessed, and I got to looking at this the other day, too, and I got to paying attention to how everybody in Moses' early days, his early life, were all women. There was the two midwives. And then there's his mother. And she puts him in the river. And then there's Pharaoh's daughter. And beside Pharaoh's daughter is Moses' sister. And Moses' sister is going to go get Moses' mother. <laughs> Every one of these is women. He used women to protect Moses, take care of him, protect him, and give him a chance to, in life out here. He winds up being the son of Pharaoh's daughter who knew that her father's command was that all male Jewish boys was to be drowned in the river. God intervened. If Pharaoh's command is take, it takes, if they take heed to Pharaoh's command and all the male children are drowned in the river, what's that going to do for the nation of Israel? It's going to wipe them out. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. Had God not intervened, they'd have been consumed. Come over here to the book of Esther. I really enjoy reading Esther. There's a character in here I really, really enjoy reading about. His name is Haman. So I said, why would you enjoy reading about Haman? Because I just enjoy seeing how he fought against God and God destroyed him. <laughs> now, they're in captivity over here in the days of Esther. Esther is a Jewish queen. I'll bypass chapter 1 and go right into chapter 2. She's a Jewish queen. Nobody knows she's a Jewish. Jewish uh, nobody knows she's a Jew except her and Mordecai at this point. Even the king doesn't know it. And we'll find in chapter 3 where Mordecai, her uncle, is down by the gate. And he has a, a position, no doubt a, a pretty influential governmental position. And he overhears a plot of two men who are plotting to assassinate the king. He lets the proper people know about it. And they capture these men and these men are hanged. And his name is pinned down into the official record as being the one who discovered it. That becomes extremely important later on. But nothing is done for Mordecai. And Haman, he gets promoted for doing nothing. There's no reason given why Haman is promoted by the king. The king decided to do it one day. Now, if you will read in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6 and verse 16, 
you read where there's six things that God hates and seven is abomination in his sight. When you read the book of Esther and you start reading about Haman, get, get the Proverbs chapter 6 and read along with it and everything that God hates you're going to see in Haman, every single one of them. So Haman, not only enjoyed his position, but he enjoyed his recognition. He enjoyed his authority. He enjoyed people bowing down to him. But there's one man who will not bow down to him in that gate, and that's Mordecai. In the beginning, Haman just kind of watched over it. But when the people, men began to talk to Mordecai about it, his behavior, he let it be known that he was a Jew. Haman finds out he's a Jew. Now, a little bit about Haman right quick. Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. God told Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we might do battle against the Amalekites to destroy them all. You know who uh, the first enemies of Israel was when they came out of the land of Egypt that opposed them? It was the Amalekites. And the scripture says that God made war with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were descendants of another enemy of God's people named Esau. So he's a descendant of the Amalekites that Saul did not destroy like God told him to do. If he had, he wouldn't have been around. But he is around. When he finds out Mordecai is a Jew, he begins a plot and a plan. And he approaches the king with this plan. And the plan is, he says, there's a people here in this land that don't abide by your laws. And their customs are different. And their laws are different. Well, that was true. He says, they're dangerous to you. If you just give me the authority, he says, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver to do this. If you just do this, he says, I'll take care of them all. The king signed the paper to do it. The plan is being hatched to exterminate the Jewish people. If God doesn't intervene, that's going to happen. So they begin to plan this. It's interesting. They plan it in the month of Nisan, which is the very month that Israel came out of the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians all, I mean, the Israelites always celebrated that. But they went through their astrologers and one thing and another, and they came, finally came up with a date that was about a year down the road. And says, gave Mordecai and them about a year to try to plan something themselves. Mordecai knows what the plan is. Esther does not. He sends word to Esther and tells her what's going on. And then one of the most well-known verses in the Bible is recorded in Esther chapter 3, verse 14. Mordecai tells Esther, he says, do you not know that you might be in the, this position, in this kingdom at this time for a reason? In other words, God just may have put you in the position you're in for this particular day. Esther took heed to that. She says, have everybody pray and fast for three days, and I'll do the same. And she got up enough nerve, enough courage to approach the king. If you approach the king without him inviting you, and he didn't hold out the golden, uh, golden censer, then you'd, you'd die. So she approaches, he holds it out. She comes. There's a banquet. She invites Haman to the banquet as well. There's two banquets. Now, in chapter 6, just before the second banquet, the king goes to bed at night, but he can't sleep. I guess we can all relate to that, can't we? He could not sleep. So he says, bring the chronicles. That's the record, the official record. Now, I told you that Mordecai discovered that plot back there in Esther chapter 3. You know how much time has gone by now? Four years have gone by. They bring the chronicles. It just happens to open up to something that happened four years before. Four years before, and he reads about this man named Mordecai who discovered a plot to have two men was going to assassinate him, and because he discovered them men was destroyed, they were killed, and he was not assassinated. And he says, was anything done for the man? They said, not a thing. He thinks something ought to have been done, some recognition, something. By that time, Haman comes into the picture. And the Lord, just, I mean, more, uh, the, the uh, king just says out loud, what would you do, Haman, for a man, <laughs> for a man that the king would want to honor? And, more, and Haman thinks, he's talking about me. 
He's got to be talking about me. He says, King, he said, I'd put a crown on his head. I'd put a robe around his shoulders. I'd put him on the king's horse. And I'd get somebody to lead him right down Main Street. The king says, I like that plan. He says, I want you to go get my horse. And you put Mordecai on him. And you put my robe around him. You put my crown upon his head. And I want you to lead him down Main Street. That's why I love reading the book of Esther. He went home humiliated. In that second banquet, it's revealed unto the king that Haman is the enemy of the Jewish people of whom his queen is a Jew. You can't make this up, brethren. You think man could write a book like this? You think man could write a story like this? If this is not proof positive of the inspiration and preservation of God's word, I don't know what is. And they came to the king with another plan. They said, this old Haman, he was having a gallows built for Mordecai over here. Says, you know, we could hang him on that if you want us to. He said, please do. And so the very gallows he had built for Mordecai, he's going to be hung on those very gallows himself. And then God gives the authority and power of the Jewish people to defend themselves. And the plan is overruled by God. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Jewish people are still not consumed today. There's never been a people more persecuted than the Jewish people. It's been said that the Jews have attended the funeral of every single person or nation. It's always tried to eliminate them. Historically speaking, that's true. Now, I want to close this morning by looking at this verse as it applies to you and applies to me. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's national, natural Israel. But it's a lesson for spiritual Israel. It's a lesson for the Lord's people, God's children, God's elect. I'm going to tell you this morning, he represents the preservation that the Lord's people have in Christ. And I can give you a lot of places this morning, but I'm going to give you three. But first of all, look at Jude, the opening verse in Jude. For Jude, the brother of James, a servant of Jesus Christ, to them who are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. If you've been preserved, you'll never be consumed. Do you know that? You're preserved. My mother made the best preserves of anybody I've ever known. My favorite was Blackberry, by the way, if you run across any. And uh, whether it be pear preserves, peach preserves, strawberry preserves, blackberry preserves, my favorite again, blackberry preserves. But as good as she was, there were occasions when she opened one of them jars and they had spoiled. Something was not done right in the process. Thank God you don't have to worry about that, your relationship with God. You don't have to worry about something going wrong in the preservation process with God. I'm telling you, every child of God, every elect, every, uh, pro, uh, 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 every uh, a child of promise, every object of God's love, they're preserved in Jesus Christ. There's not even the slightest possibility that you will ever perish. You're preserved in the Savior. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 13, or 23. Paul says, and I pray that the God of peace shall preserve you holy. And your whole body and soul and spirit be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What blameless? Preserved blameless. Who's doing the preserving? God is. He said you'll preserve your body. He'll preserve your spirit. He'll preserve your soul until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in 2 Timothy 4, 12, 13, and 14, Paul's talking about some of his trials. He says, God shall deliver me from every evil work, evil work and shall preserve me into his heavenly kingdom. See the word preserved? Who does the preserving? God does the preserving. There's three things God has promised to preserve. He's promised to preserve his word. He's promised to preserve his church. And he's promised to preserve you, his children, his people, his family, his bride, He's promised to preserve you. That's called eternal security. He is the Lord. He changes not. Therefore, the sons of Jacob shall not be consumed. 
There's nothing, my friends, that can possibly rob you out or take you out of the hand of God that can ever, uh, uh, you know, uh, keep you from being in glory one sweet day. The Lord knows who you are. He saved you by His grace. He saved you by His shedding blood. He's coming again. He will raise your bodies out of the dust of this earth. He'll translate the living. You'll be called together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall you ever be with the Lord. And not one will be left behind. That's an essential Christian doctrine taught in the Word of God. If I believe that salvation could be mine today and gone tomorrow, I would never sleep a wink at night. It'd be my concern. Have I worked hard enough? Have I worked long enough? Have I believed strong enough? Have, will my doubts overcome my belief? Will the things I've thought about, the things I've done, will it be more than the things that I've done in a positive manner? Will I make it? Will I not? How could I ever sleep one week at night? This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you understand the truth, my friends, of God's blessed word. It'll enable you to go to sleep at night on the hardest mattress you've ever laid down on with the worst pillow you've ever put your head on. Now, I'm all for a good pillow and a good mattress, but I'm just telling you, my friends, when you understand the truth of what I'm telling you about this morning, you can sleep on the floor underneath the dining room table. You can put a rock under your head, and you think about this, the next thing you know, you're sound asleep because you're resting in the sweet arms of the Savior. You're resting in the truth of sovereign grace. You're represented by, represented by Jacob in these texts. And God's going to take care of you. And the devil and all his angels, my friends, can never take one out of the hand of God. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Shall trials or tribulation, nakedness, pearls, famine, or sword, can they separate you? No, they cannot. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that not either death nor life or height nor death or any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you may not believe what I believe, but I hope I preach in a way this morning you believe I believe what I believe. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore your sons of Jacob are not consumed.